0: Hey, everyone. This is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Leed. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. We're going to transition into our time of the reading of God's word and hearing it preached. Uh, Pardon me, I have a frog in my throat this week. The smoke and everything has just been hard on me. Allergies and all that. So if I cough a lot, uh, I'm not sick. I promise I will try not to get you sick. At least none of you are sitting in the front row. You know, Baptist churches, we're good. We know you don't sit in the front row. You, know, you just you never sit in the front row, which is good. It's good when the preacher has a cough. So <clears throat> I hope you bear with me this morning. But this morning we are transitioning in our study of Ephesians. We wrapped up last week our study of the first 3 chapters which are primarily theological in nature. They deal with the nature of salvation Paul lays out the fact that he is through the spirit revealed the mystery of salvation these truths that were long hidden things that that people in the old covenant did not understand exactly how they would work out. And and now, through the apostles, through the writing of the New Testament, these great mysteries have been made known. Primarily, he started by talking about the mystery of salvation itself, how exactly salvation works, the nature of the role of the Trinity within salvation. And then he dove into the unity of the church, that Jews and Gentiles are unified in the church. There is no distinction. They are unified together together. In one true, holy, and if we dare use the word, Catholic, universal church. And this morning we are transitioning. Paul has wrapped up that theological section and we are now moving into the practical application. Paul is now going to apply this, this salvation. What do we do in light of these mysteries? So with that in mind, I'd ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16, which says, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the full knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together, By what every joint supplies, according to the proper measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Behold the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we transition into this time of hearing your word preached, I pray that you would help these these truths to be near and dear to us. May we take this application that the Apostle has given to not just the church in Ephesus in his day, but really as a letter to the entirety of the church. May we take this to heart. And may we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. May we live out our faith. Lord, help us not to be arrogant. Help us not to reject these truths. But Let, them, let us make them a part of our lives. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, that you would be with our church. Help us to have an impact here in our community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So really, to sum up this passage, Paul gives the the saints commands to walk worthy of their calling. He gives a creedal statement on unity. He speaks about the importance of the individual gifts. And then he closes with the necessity of spiritual maturity. So needless to say, there is a lot in this text. He opens by commanding them to walk worthy of their calling, a creedal statement on unity, and he speaks on the importance of the individual gifting of the church, and then he speaks on the necessity of spiritual maturity. But as we open this, I hope you notice the first word in this passage is, therefore if you spend any time here, you know that that is a very important word. We take notice of, of certain transition words within Scripture. The word therefore is very important. The word but is very, is very important. And, and this therefore is Paul saying in light of everything that I've just told you. Remember, he wraps up the last, the last section you know, with a, with a doxology, almost like he's ending a separate letter. And then he begins here in chapter four by saying, therefore, so in light of the mystery of salvation, in light of the unity between Jews and Gentiles, in light of everything that Christ has done for you, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, calling back to his previous statement earlier on in chapter three, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you or command you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is Paul calling them to do in light of all of this the deep, rich theology that he has laid out for three chapters? The what that he is calling them to do is to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk worthy of the calling. You know, Spurgeon summarizes Paul's words very well. He says, summarizing Paul's words here, he says, You are called to be sons of God. You are called to be one with Christ. You are called to be kings and priests unto God. This is the highest possible vocation that anyone can have. So walk worthy of it. To be called out, this idea of being called. Obviously, it harkens back to chapter 1 when he's talking about the Father calling us out, uh, predestining us. It's, it's, it's harkening back to chapter 2 when you were formerly dead in your sins, but God called you out of that. But really, what it is calling back to is the nature of the word church. I'm not some great Greek scholar, but one thing I do know... Is that the Greek word for the church is ekklesia? Literally, what that means is the called out ones. The prefix ek, ek means out of, and then koleo is to call. The church literally means those who have been called out. This, of course, paints an instant image for us of jesus's words in john chapter 6 my sheep will know my voice john chapter 6 and john chapter 10 excuse me talking about the sheep and and how his sheep will know his voice in john chapter 10 That we are the called out ones and i think in our modern context in our day and age we we don't often think of what it means to be the church to be the church is to be called out of the world There is a fundamental difference, and that difference is in the work of Christ in our life. So walk worthy of the fact that you have been called out by God, adopted by God, saved from your sins. Well, the immediate question that we have is, what does that look like? How do we walk worthy of this? Remember, this is the application section of this book. So Paul gives us five ways to walk worthy of the call. We walk in humility. Verse, uh, verse 2 and 3, it opens by saying, with all humility. Well, really, if you think of it, if you think of everything that Paul has laid out, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive with Christ. You know, if we hearken back to the language that Paul uses, the fact that God is the active party in salvation, we are merely passive within salvation, that God is the one who does the work so that no one may boast. Paul emphasizes that phrase that we're saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. Humility ought to be the most natural response for a Christian. Any Christian who understands the gospel, humility is going to be the most natural response We are not arrogant. We cannot be arrogant. Pride is openly condemned, very vehemently within Scripture, because we have no reason to boast in our faith. So we walk with with all humility, but we also walk with all gentleness. You think of the words of Christ to his disciples, to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We are to be a gentle people. We are not to be a violent people. We are not to be an angry people. We are to be a gentle people. We also walk with patience. And I love this. As I was reading through and studying one of the things that uh, R.C. Sproul points out is that the Greek word here for patience is... Oh, man, I'm going to butcher my Greek here. This is going to be a terrible pronunciation. Makrothumia. And it means long-suffering. The the literal understanding of this word is that it is the opposite of a person with a hair-trigger temper. You know, sometimes we understand things better by understanding their opposites. And so this word literally means the opposite of someone with a hair-trigger. You know, think of those people who who just explode with rage and, and fury at the slightest provocation. Those people who are instantly upset and angry about things. This is not what we are supposed to be. We are to be the opposite of this. We are to be long-suffering and patient. We should not react in anger and rage at the drop of a hat. We should be patient and long-suffering people. We should bear with one another in love. This is the fourth thing. Bear with one another in love. We are to love one another. Think of the unity that Paul has just dove into in the unifying of the Jews and the Gentiles. There are differences between us. Anyone, anyone who has ever worked with any people knows that it is a difficult thing to bear with one another. We are a frustrating people. It's hard to work together. But we must bear with one another in love. And the fifth way we walk worthy of our calling is being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit. I love that phrase, be diligent. This is an active thing. You know, if we're passive in the life of the church, the church will divide and split. If we are not active in trying to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit within the church, if we are not actively seeking unity within our congregation, we will naturally split and divide. We must be diligent, we must have an active focus to stay unified with one another because people are difficult. This is challenging. It's not easy to be part of a church, but it is important. And if you read these five things, you might notice, if you're familiar in Galatians 5 with Paul's list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, this might sound very similar. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against against such things there is no law to walk worthy of the call is to walk in the fruit that the spirit of god grows within us and it looks like humility gentleness patience you know long suffering looks like bearing with one another in love and it looks like an active diligence to unify the church These are virtues that we ought to have. So often, we try to look at exterior traits that we might have to see if we're being fruitful. And that's not always a bad test within the life of a church. But I think we need to look deeper. These are not just mere exterior things. This is not just... Yeah, I've got a smile when I come to church and I I greet one another and I say, hey, and I'm happy and I smile. These are internal virtues. These are things that are active within our life. We must take this seriously. So Paul gives those five things. This is what it looks like to walk worthy of the call. And then he gives this creedal statement on unity. He says in verses four through six, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I say this is a creedal statement. And what I mean by that, I think we have to understand what a creed is. You know, maybe some of you are familiar with reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in worship. But a creed is simply a cohesive and concise statement of faith. It's easy to recall. It's easy to memorize and teach and to benefit from. And so Paul gives this, this poetic statement of, of a virtual creed. And he, he, he uses one word very repeatedly in this. And you probably noticed it one. He goes, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. So what is there one of? He says, there's one body. Well, immediately in our modern context, we go, okay, Paul, you might have got this wrong because, look, we're meeting right here this morning, right? We are we are a body of Christ. We're meeting right here. But just down the street, there's another church. So how can there be one body? Well, to understand this, we have to understand there is what is theologically known as the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church is the universal church. I use that word Catholic, the Catholic church. It simply means universal. It is All true Christians of all time. Everyone who has truly been saved is a member of the universal church. But then there are also visible churches. We are a visible church. Connection Church, hearing lead. We are a visible church that meets on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. You know, you should tell all your friends that. It's really easy to remember, 10.30 a.m. But we're a visible church. What Paul is speaking of is there is one true church. The true church is referred to as the body of Christ. So there is one body, that is not divided, even though our denominations may be divided, because we're not all Reformed Baptists, but we should be. So there's multiple denominations. There's, there's, there's multiple different churches like that we see, but there is one true church that cannot be divided. This is the church that Christ promised that he would build, and the very gates of hell would not prevail against it. There's one body There is one spirit. All true Christians are indwelt by the spirit of God. There is one unifying spirit. We all have the spirit of God within us. If you are saved, you have the spirit of God within you. Just as there is one hope of your calling, we're only saved through Christ. There is one Lord who is Christ. There is one faith. There are not multiple faiths. We are not universalists. We do not believe that all roads lead to heaven. There is only one faith. There is one baptism. And yes, we might be divided on our mode and our timing of baptism, but there is unity within baptism. This is one thing that I don't think is pointed out enough. Even though, yes, some churches, some denominations baptize differently than us. You know, We practice baptism by submersion of confessing believers. Others sprinkle children of, you know, the children of confessing believers. So there's division right on that mode. Like, do we submerge or do we sprinkle? There's division on the timing. Do we baptize children or do we only baptize adults? But there is unity, and I don't think it gets pointed out enough. There is unity of form. We all baptize. A true baptism is Trinitarian in nature. When we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is unity of purpose. It is a sign of membership in the visible church. Those are two things that we all agree on. And we can get so hung up on our disagreement, but it's true. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all. And then he goes into this beautiful, he closes out this poetic creed by saying, by describing the Father. By describing who God is. So there's one God and Father. And he is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. He's painting a picture of the complete sovereignty of God. The complete sovereignty of the Father, that the Father is over all. There is no one higher than him. He is the ultimate authority. That he is through all, that he is omnipresent, that he permeates everything, that he is in all things. That there is nothing outside of his control. That's how he closes this creed. But this this creed is just beautiful. I found myself coming back to it again and again and again in, in a time where there seems to be such division in life. That there is, it's such a beautiful reminder to read this and say there's one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's similar to Paul's other words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For also by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. There's a beauty in the unity of the church that I think we are so quick to pass over because we feel so divided. But there is encouragement in the unity that we are all one in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He contrasts this. So he says, we're completely unified, right? We are completely unified in that list of things. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But then he goes, but in verse seven, he says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he's transitioning. He says, there's unity, there's complete unity, but there's also individualism. And we tend to get hung up on one or the other in the life of the church. We tend to either be hung up on the complete unity where we can't have any disagreement and there can't be any difference within us. We all have to look the same, dress the same, talk the same, be the same. But that's not the way it is. And on the other side, we get caught up in this radical individualism where it only matters what you think or feel. There's no unity in the church whatsoever. We are such an interesting people, almost on a pendulum, where we swing to one side or the other. But Paul is contrasting these things. There is complete unity, but there is individual gifting. So verses 7 through 12. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself. Also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So he says complete unity, but then he says to each one of us the individual members within the church. And we were given gifts according to the measure of Christ's gifts. That we were given these gifts according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, now some would try and say that, that this is salvific, that's talking about salvation, but it's not because Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying that not only has Christ saved us, but Christ has also gifted us. What a beautiful picture that, that Christ not only saves our souls, but he also gives gifts unto men. And then, and then Paul quotes from Psalm 68 and he says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then he explains this. You know, he, he, Paul gives commentary on how exactly this psalm applies to Christ. Christ is the one who descended to earth, eternal God, creator of the universe, the one who made all things, humbled himself. Think of Philippians 2. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He descended to earth. He lived the perfect life, the ministry of Christ. He, he completely obeyed God's law. He was crucified for our sins. He died, and on the third day, he resurrected from the dead. And that says, he ascended in victory. Christ accomplished all that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And he, when he ascended, he ascended in complete victory. And then there's this beautiful phrase. And he led captive a host of captives. Now, when we hear that word captive, we tend to think of it in a negative light, right? Like we tend to think, oh, that's a negative thing. To be captive is to be a prisoner, is to be a slave, is to be something like that. And, And there is that connotation. It is true within Scripture that we are called the slaves of Christ. But these captives that this psalm is talking about is all of the saved. All of those who have been set free in Christ... That he came, those who were captive to their sin, who were dead in their trespasses and sin. Christ descended to earth, and, and, and when he ascended in victory, he led the host of the elect, all of the saved for all time, who are freed in Christ. He led us with him. We are seen, again, this is common language in scripture, that we as Christians are seen as being present with Christ. And he gave gifts to the redeemed. Spurgeon said on this, we have not all the same form of grace and we cannot all perform the same service for the Savior. We differ very much from each other as to our abilities and to the positions which we can occupy. And our Lord intended it to be so. You ever wondered why we're so different? And you ever wondered why we as people are just so doggone different? Why we have different likes, different passions, different abilities different strengths different weaknesses this is because god intended it to be this way christ himself specifically gifted every member of the church to be able to serve in a different capacity and what this means is when we withhold the gifting that god has given us when we refuse to serve in the way that god has has gifted us to serve his church we are robbing the church We are stealing from the church by a refusal to use how God has made us. But then Paul gives specific gift things. He focuses in on the leadership of the church and how Christ is the one who has gifted the leadership of the church. And "And he himself, Christ himself, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So there's those first two roles that are really closely linked. There's apostles and prophets. We know even from earlier in this book that they were the foundation of the church. The foundation has been laid. Paul himself says that he is the last of the apostles as one untimely born. So we in our day, in the 21st century, we don't necessarily have the apostles and prophets with us. But we have their words. They were the ones who were charged to write scripture. So in a very tangible, and in a very real sense, we as the church are still being led by the apostles and prophets. It is as if they are with us, leading us through the words that the Spirit penned down through them. So there's the apostles, the prophets, but then there's the evangelists. And really diving into what does it mean to be an evangelist. The the evangelists were those who would go and begin a new work of God. They would go and plant churches. The evangelists were basically the early church planters they would be the ones who would go into the neighboring cities. So Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus and then to be distributed. But let's say someone was raised up within Ephesus, Timothy, who was preaching there, raised up a leader and sent out that leader to go to Pergamum, I don't know, somewhere else, to start a new work of God. They were sent as an evangelist, as a church planter. Well, obviously that one's very near and dear to my heart being someone who has been sent out to start a church, to start a work of God in another community. But then Christ himself also gave pastors and teachers. And it's interesting to note, these are linked together. They are listed as one. The pastors and the teachers. The pastors are to be the ones that teach. So, so. Paul gives this list of the leadership within the church, this kind of hierarchy of structure within the church. We have the apostles and the prophets who have now passed on. We have their words to lead us. We then have evangelists who are sent out to start churches. We have pastors who lead churches, who teach the church. And what is the purpose of these gifted offices? What is the purpose for these men? Verse 12 tells us very clearly. The purpose of these offices is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. They are to equip the saints. You know, it's interesting. When when I began moving towards going into ministry and especially towards going into church planting, there's a common nomenclature, a common phrase that's used of, oh, you're going into the ministry. That's really an incorrect phrase if we think about it. According to this passage, that shouldn't be how we talk about it. Those who are pastors and evangelists, yes, they're still in the ministry, but, but in a real sense, they're leaving the ministry. They're leaving the day-to-day work of the ministry to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, right? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, that's the first thing there to equip the saints for the work of service, and this instantly puts to death kind of we. If we're not careful, we can have an idea that the, the work of the ministry is purely the job of the pastor, like regardless of where we are, regardless of where we grew up in church. There, it just, just kind of is that idea that it's like okay, uh, doing ministry, sharing the gospel, discipling people, raising people up in the faith, you know, going out and evangelizing. That kind of idea that we have of ministry, which is a correct idea of ministry, we can attribute that and say that it's the pastor who's supposed to do that. And that's true. The pastor is supposed to do that. The pastor is not abdicating his responsibility to do that. But the specific scriptural purpose of a pastor and a teacher, of an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, is not necessarily to do the work of ministry. It is to equip you for the work of ministry. You are to be the ones who are going into this community and doing the work of ministry. But that's not it. Pastors are to equip for the work of ministry. Yes, that's, that's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is to build up the body of Christ. As members of Christ's church, as, as congregants within this visible church, your task, you have a two-fold task to reach the community with the gospel, and to build this church up. You are to build up the body of Christ. And again, all of a sudden it becomes really clear how important our spiritual giftings are. It becomes a really big deal when one person begins to rob the church of how God has gifted them because they are failing in their purpose to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Again, I think Spurgeon summarizes it well when he says, Then whatever spiritual gifts we have, they are not our own to use as we please. They are only entrusted to us that we may employ them to help our fellow Christians. So what does this look like? You should ask yourself a question. He goes on. How can I best utilize myself for the benefit of the rest of the members of the church? do not ask how can i benefit myself when the first and last concern of a man is his own salvation his own comfort his own advancement his own edification and nothing besides he needs to be saved from such a selfish spirit as that those are harsh words but if our primary concern is our own faith our own sanctification our own comfort our own desires We are fundamentally selfish and we are robbing the church of Christ of the gifts that he's given us. We ought to take Spurgeon's advice and ask the question how can I best utilize myself for the benefit of the rest of the members of the church? How can I give of myself for the sake of each other? How can I give of myself to benefit Tim and Char? Catherine, Dominique, Bruce. Like, how how can I give of myself to benefit them? And this is because the, the calling of the church, as one commentator puts it, is to be a mobilized army. We are to be ready. We are to be equipped. We are to be armed in love for one another and a desire to do the ministry. So that is what we are to do that is what you are to do but what is the aim of this gifting for what you know if we're like okay we understand what we're to do we understand how we're to do it we kind of understand some of the purpose of why we do it but what is the goal what are we aimed at what's our target verses 13 through 16 gives us this until we all attain to the unity of the faith And the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to be grown up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. From whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there's that opening phrase, until we all attain. So here's the mark. Here is is the aim. Here's the target downfield, downrange for us that we're aiming at to try and get that bullseye. So until we attain what? Unity of faith. So we are to do this. We are to use our spiritual giftings. We are to be built up by the leadership of the church, by the pastor of the church. Until we attain, doing ministry, building up the body of Christ, until we attain perfect unity. Anyone who has spent more than a day in the church knows that's a difficult task. But we are to strive for this. We are to strive for the unity of the faith. We're to fight for perfect unity. And secondly, for the full knowledge of Christ, which, to sum that up, would be perfect theology. So what's the long-range goal of the church? What is the long-range purpose of of doing the work of the ministry, of building up one another in love, of building up the body of Christ? It is to attain to perfect unity together and perfect theology. Those are two very difficult tasks, but that's what we have been charged with. And so oftentimes, you know, especially as you try to be more ecumenical and work together with other churches and different things like that, you you begin to get questions from people. Well, how can we unify our position on this? Like I talked about the division on baptism, right? Well, how can we unify our understanding of baptism as the church universal? Because clearly that's what we're called to do. I have to say, in all honesty, I have no idea. Because we haven't been able to do it yet, right? We're 2,000 years in, and we haven't been able to do that yet. But through the Spirit, through the work of the Spirit in the church, the calling out of the saints, and the using of one another's gifts to build up the body of Christ, I believe we can have that unity. It might not be in my lifetime. It might not be in your lifetime. But I believe that we can reach that point. I believe we can reach a point as the church as a whole where we have unity of the faith and full knowledge of Christ. But rather than just giving us these seemingly impossible goals, Paul brings it a little bit more down to earth. He brings it a little bit closer to our feet. So we've got our long-range goal. You know, if you've ever gone target shooting and you've got your 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 800 yard, your 700 yard, your 400 yard all the way back to your like 50 yard targets. He's given us like the 1000 yard shot, right? He's given us that long range goal of unity of the faith and full knowledge of Christ. But then he gives us our 100 yard 100 yard goal, a little bit easier to achieve, a little bit closer for us to understand. And that is to be a mature man or you know, mature woman, but to be a mature man in Christ. So what does that look like? Well, is the fullness of Christ. It's the fullness of Christ. We are to be image bearers of Christ. So, so, so there's a little bit closer target. We are to image who Christ is in our own life. And how do we do this? We do as he moves a little bit closer. We do it so that we're no longer children. He begins to contrast this maturity and immaturity. He begins to paint a picture of what it looks like to be immature in the faith and what it looks like to be mature in the faith. So what are we striving for? What's our 50-yard target here? Our 50-yard target here is to no longer be children, children who are tossed here and there by waves, who are carried about by every wind of doctrine. What well, we instantly think of, of being immature of the faith, what he's painting for us, the picture he's painting for us, is almost a ship tossed about by the waves. There's no anchor there. It's just being thrown around by the waves. And you think of those Christians, and I think in the immaturity of, our, immaturity of our faith, I think we can probably all remember times where when someone said something that sounded good, we were like, yeah, that. That sounds good. I agree with that, right? And as long as it kind of resonated with us and sounded good in the immaturity of our faith, if we're immature in our faith, we go, yeah, 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 yeah. this guy said this over here, so I'm going to go over here. Oh, no, no, this guy's saying this over here, so I'm going to go over here. And you're kind of tossed about by all these different teachings. And then you're susceptible to false teachers. And this, this passage is the warning within Ephesians. I always say almost every book of the Bible contains a warning against false teachers or false teaching. This passage is that warning. If you're immature in the faith and you're carried about by every wind of doctrine, you are susceptible to false teachers and to clever scheming. Best way I can sum that up, when you watch some of the televangelists on TV and they say, sow a seed to reap a harvest, you know, give me $1,000 and God will give it back to you $10,000. You're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'll do that. I can buy a new car, Right. Clever scheming, false teachers, you're carried about by every wind of doctrine. So that's what it looks like to be immature. But what does it look like to be mature? So we're not to be immature, we're not to be children. Well, we can kind of take the opposite of that. You know, we can kind of contrast it and go, okay, if that's what it looks like to be immature, clearly maturity looks like having a strong anchor. We're not just being tossed around. And that's very true. We recognize true teaching. But Paul says specifically that being mature in the faith is to speak the truth in love. One of the most dangerous things that I've noticed in the modern church is this, this dichotomy, the this separation of truth and love. We kind of view it as, as, a, as a pendulum. You know, if someone says something, say like, homosexuality is a sin and it's always a sin. We're like, "Oh, that's true, but man, that's not loving." Like you're swinging way hard on the truth pendulum, right? But you're not being very loving. And and we kind of separate these things out. But scripture doesn't do that. Speaking the truth in love does not mean you're finding that balance of 50% I'm 50% truthful and I'm 50% loving. To be 50% truthful and 50% loving is to be neither. You you must be 100% true in what you say and 100% loving in what you say. That's what maturity looks like. Now, we don't get that as people. But I think if we were to say, what does this look like? It looks like loving the truth. If you love the truth, you're not arrogant about the truth. You're not being unloving. You are, you're passionate. You're genuine. But you love the truth. And therefore, when you speak the truth, you're speaking it in love. Because the reality is, if you're telling someone something true, but it's not loving, if you're doing it in a spiteful, angry, hateful way, it's not actually the truth. You cannot hate the person you're sharing the gospel with. It's not possible if you do you're not sharing the gospel and also on the other end if you love someone you can't lie to them if you actually love somebody you will find yourself unable to tell them lies because love is always true and the truth is always love now a little bit of a caveat the truth doesn't always look loving to us because we've kind of redefined love right in our generation we've kind of redefined love to simply mean what i like love simply means a good feeling if you're in love with someone it means you get butterflies when you're around them but biblically that's not love love can be hard Anyone who has had to have any kind of intervention with anyone on any subject knows that true love, true love, telling someone you're hurting yourself, stop, is hard. It's pointed. It's a smack in the face. But that's genuine love. So maturity in the faith means speaking the truth in love and growing up into Christ. That idea of growing up into Christ is the idea of sanctification. And that's encouraging to me because this is a process. Paul is not commanding us to, you know, there is an essence in which, yes, we should do this instantly. We should walk out of this door and do what he's commanded us to do. But there is the idea of sanctification. Sanctification. Paul uses the picture of the body again. He says, you know, Christ is from whom the whole body is growing, being joined together and held together. And he closes out in that way, that it's functioning properly, references the gifts again. But there's this idea of growth. There's a recognition that we don't get it right. We struggle. That idea of speaking the truth in love, a maturity of the faith, being grounded in the faith, is challenging. It's difficult And it's not something that we necessarily just get like that. We have to grow into it. And I find it really encouraging that Christ is the one. He says, Christ is from whom the whole body is growing. I'm not trying to just well up within myself righteous deeds. They're beginning to grow within us as a church because Christ is growing them. And that's encouraging to me. So when we think about this passage, when we ask the question, what do we do? What, what, what is the application of this passage? Well, one of the reasons I really love these last three chapters in Ephesians is the application is really easy. I can just go, do what Paul said to do. It's a really easy application for me. I don't have to go, okay, here's the spiritual principle. How do we apply it to our lives? This is simple. Just do what's on the page. So how do we do that? We obey Paul's commands. So I, your pastor, In light of the mystery of the gospel, exhort you to do these things. Walk worthy of your call. If you wonder what that looks like, it means you walk with all humility. You're not arrogant or boastful. You walk with gentleness. You're not a a fighting spirit. Walk with patience. Do Do not be angry at the drop of a hat. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another in love. When the people in this room or maybe the people not in this room frustrate you, be patient with one another. Bear with one another and bear with one another in love. Be diligent. I commend you to be diligent, to actively seek to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace within this fellowship. And remember, and I encourage you to confess, confess this creed. That there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Confess that. Write that down. Make that a creed that you memorize. Dive into what it means. Remember that you are set free in Christ. That you are one of the captives that Christ has led in his ascension. And practically, day to day, week to week, use your gifts... As members of the invisible church and as members of this visible church, use your gifts to do the work of the ministry in this community. Use your spiritual giftings to do the work of the ministry. And use your giftings to build up the body of Christ. Build this community, strengthen it, grow it, invite others to it. Finally, strive for the unity of the faith and strive for the full knowledge of the Son of God. Just because that's a far target, just because that's our thousand-yard target as Christians, to strive for that perfect unity and perfect theology, doesn't mean we shouldn't aim at it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. And what that looks like is how can we raise our children to be closer to that target than we are? There's a really good chance that I might never see that baptism debate solved because not everybody's going to you know, humble themselves and become a Reformed Baptist. But there's a really good chance that I might not see that debate solved in my lifetime, right? But what of my children, my grandchildren? Keep the thousand-yard target in line. But also keep that 50-yard target in line too. Don't be children in the faith. Don't be tossed around by false teachings. Take everything back to the word of God. Actually strive to grow in your maturity and faith. And practice this. This is not something that's easy to get down, but practice speaking the truth in love. Chances are you're probably neglecting one of those things. You're probably either kind of just being a jerk or you're not saying what you ought to say because you're afraid of the truth. Practice speaking the truth in love. This is a very practical section of scripture. And I love that. But keep in mind, all of this is to be done in light of the gospel. Doing these things does not earn you righteousness. This doesn't get you brownie points with God. We are to go, okay, I'm saved. He has saved me from my sin. Now how do I live? And this is what we do. This is how we live our lives. So I encourage you. Do those things walk walk according worthy of the calling that you've been called you the called out ones let's pray heavenly father lord i thank you for this passage god i thank you for these words that the apostle paul penned through your spirit lord i pray that we would take them to heart Help us to, in light of our salvation, in light of the truths that have been taught through this book, in light of the mystery of salvation, help us to walk worthy of our calling. You called us out of this world. We are no longer dead. We shouldn't live like dead men and women. We should live like those who are alive. Help us to put that into practice every day this week. The Father... When we fall short, when we fail, would you please forgive us first, but also remind us that you are the one that grows your church. So Lord, may we not be discouraged in our frailty. May we be encouraged by the knowledge that you grow your church, that you are every day sanctifying us. So Lord, please help us, strengthen us, give us the courage and the strength to walk in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, and let's close out in the doxology. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow, praise him, all creatures. the words of Paul in this passage, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. May we do so. Amen.